You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. I think uh, Lucas did a great job introducing that. I would emphasize the offense thing. Definitely, if you're, if you're easily offended, you've come to the right place. So um, that also might be my only joke. Um, welcome, Summit Church. I hope you've all enjoyed our series in the book of 1 John. So if you remember, we've been going through the book of 1 John. It's been a privilege um, to be here with you guys and to just take a verse-by-verse approach to Scripture. Honestly, it's my personal favorite. I love going systematically, verse-by-verse. Let me see what I can draw out from the text and apply it to my life. Um, today, you know, just thinking about that, we're also... You know, just uh, we're very blessed to be a part of a church where the gift of teaching is self-evident. Uh, so we know that God has blessed us with many spiritual gifts and teaching is not lacking. So I really praise God for that. It's very, very important in the church. And I'm hoping that through this sermon, we can better understand why it's important and uh, kind of maybe observe how some other churches uh, have been doing a great job and maybe some of them have not. Uh, You may be asking yourself, why teaching? Uh, Why is this important in in the church? And what makes one teaching correct and another false? And, you know, just keep that in your mind. We'll be briefly thinking about that and examining that. And uh, once again, I'm glad you're here. Our next sermon series seeks to better understand. I'm cutting out, huh? um, The Bible in light of our current political and religious climate. Uh, in today's information age, it's easy to be described um, like the man in Ephesians 4.14, uh, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. So we don't want to be like that. We want to be firmly rooted in Christ. Amen? Um, the church has historically stood up for biblical doctrines. Some of these doctrines include uh, the deity of Christ, salvation available um, by grace through faith in Christ alone, the resurrection, and Christ's second coming, to name a few, right, if that sounds familiar. Now the question arises, what is the church teaching today? 2021, right? Are we still making Christ famous? Are we decreasing while Christ is increasing? Are we pointing sinners to Christ? Or are we falling for every wind of doctrine? Are we leaving Christian orthodoxy or historical Christianity? Well, I think I've kept you in suspense long enough, and I ought to be blunt as to the topics that we're going to be covering for the next four weeks. I'm not sure if it was in the intro packet. Our next series is called Truth Over Trend, and we'll be examining social justice, critical race theory, gender confusion, and woke theology. Okay, so I'll I'll let you take that in for a sec. (laughs) Prepare yourselves. (laughs) Uh, It's important as Christians to understand these topics as we share the gospel with unbelievers and objections to our faith and scripture arises. So if you discuss your uh, faith and we encourage evangelism, we live out of evangelism, right? Um, We're going to hear some objections to the Bible. Uh, We have like assertions from people that the Bible is this. Uh, We can't trust the Bible. The Bible is not infallible. The Bible actually promotes hatred. Um, So we'll be briefly uh, examining that. And it was Alexander Hamilton 
that said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. So we should be standing for something. Um, as, a, as a church, I'm asking that we navigate these murky waters and come to a better understanding of who Christ is and what does he want from us, the church, his bride, right? Um, now, before we continue, let me begin with a word of prayer, okay? Heavenly Father, creator and sustainer of life, we are seeking your will today as a church. We want to be about your business and pleasing to you. Help us navigate through scripture today. Feed us by your word. Let the spirit use your word to wash us in the renewing of our minds and pointing us to the blood of the lamb. Lord, I pray that you would give us patience and loving kindness with one another. Father, I pray that you would convict us where we need convicting and forgive us for our sins. Deliver us from evil and protect our minds as we move forward with the series you impressed upon our hearts. May we leave this building more knowledgeable and emboldened to proclaim the gospel. Lastly, I pray that you would protect us from the vain philosophies of men. Yours is the kingdom, glory, and honor. Come quickly, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Wow, you're still with us. I don't see any tomatoes were thrown at me yet. <laughs> um, that's a good sign. Uh, I'll begin by saying that these topics are probably as uncomfortable for me as they are for you. And, you know, in that kind of sphere, they say that politics and religions are, and politics and religion is taboo. Uh, in society, we should never talk about politics or religion. Talk about the weather or anything else, just not politics, okay? I'm trusting, however, because we are a body of people that gather every week to talk about religion anyway, uh, we can discuss politics because what's another log on the fire between friends, right? Um, now, as you have noticed, the series is different from verse-by-verse -verse teaching, as we've been getting used to, and just kind of examining that. Uh, topical studies are easier and more difficult to structure. Um, the beauty of verse-by-verse, -verse, on one end, is that systematic, linear approach to scripture. Uh, topical, on the other hand, seeks to use scripture still in context, and that's very important, to prove a point or guide the audience to a new and profound understanding of the text. And I'll give you an example. Um, so if we read verse by verse, we can like have the topic in mind, like sovereignty of God, right? And anytime you're reading through a text and something that appears to be uh, in that topic, sovereignty of God, we can examine it, right? A topical, on the other hand, um, use clear illustrations and examples in context to build a case to support the idea of sovereignty of God throughout the scripture. And all scripture is fair game. So you can kind of like cherry pick verses to build a case. Um, once again, keeping the scripture in the context. You can't just pull it out and says, do not judge, so I must never judge, right? Um, and we're going to get to something called uh, exegesis and eisegesis, to kind of lay out some frameworks, okay? So. Now, it's important to understand the errors in these four movements. These movements use scripture out of context to change the original meaning and twist scripture into a new and trendy understanding. As Satan has been doing this since the Garden of Eden, 
And the old adage holds up, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, okay? Before we get into the four movements, we must first understand eisegesis and exegesis. Okay, eisegesis is the interpretation of a text by reading into it one's own ideas. So you read a scripture and you say, I think this interpretation means this. And it's basically void of any historical context or understanding of the text. Your own ideas. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of hesitate to do this, but I'll give you guys a sad example of what I mean by this, okay? I'll turn to John 11.43, um, and I'll, I'll just quickly read it. Also, by the way, to give some context, this is the raising of Lazarus. It's a very famous passage. Um, when he had said this, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. That's the NIV version. Uh, a recent eisegetical interpretation ignores uh, a context and lifts the singular verse out to mean, and, I, and I've heard this on, uh, in a f- philosophical um, theological movement called uh, TikTok. Okay, there was a, a theologian there, and he was saying, Jesus was telling his friend to come out of the closet and embrace his true homosexual self. And would you look at that? Jesus affirmed his friend um, and, and set him free from the bonds of slavery. His shackles fell off, and now he can be free. He loosed the grave clothes. That's representing his newfound freedom in his identity, right? And it seems like a nonsensical understanding of John 11, so I have to be brutally honest. Another rule of thumb for the best interpretation of scripture, when you find yourself confused, is scripture interprets scripture. So just for your own personal study. An exegetical understanding of John 11 and the raising of Lazarus clearly lays out Christ's deity, so that's very important, and the power over death itself. The whole chapter seems to hinge on the verse uh, in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So this is the main point, and we have to keep it in context, where you see the opposite in eisegesis, where we have crazy insertions to mean whatever and to affirm whatever, and actually contrary to the word of God. There is no need to inject meaning into a text that is not there. Although there are many ways we can apply the text application, there is a correct interpretation of the text, even if it is debatable at times. As a church, we stand on scripture alone, and if you remember, it's one of our core values of the church, scripture alone. The Bible is without error. We believe the word of God has authority over our lives as we as redeemed sinners, remember we must submit to God's word even when we are alone and it's unpopular. Okay? We have our, at our disposal the Holy Spirit in us, which leads us in all truth. We have the gift of teaching in the church. We have 2,000 years of church history and commentary. And we should use all the tools at our disposal to avoid error. And it's great to be here 2,000 years later in hindsight to look back at church history and understand the experiences of the men and women that have come before us. The next verse will help segue into the main teaching. And it's funny because when I put this together, it wasn't on purpose, 
But this was part of the scripture reading for this morning. Colossians 2.8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, and just for a little homework, I'll also cite 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, speaking of false teachers. All right. Now, remember, we've, we're going to cover four trends. So just so you know where we're at in the sermon, I hope it doesn't get too long and monotonous. But um, we know we have to hit four hurdles. And as we approach a hurdle, I'll just kind of give you a heads up and say, okay, first hurdle. And I'm going to give you a heads up now. First hurdle. We have social justice. Now, I'm going to provide a little background understanding. on. Now that I have provided some background understanding on how to interpret scripture, talking about eisegesis, exegesis, let's consider the first trend, social justice. On first look, it seems great, even godly. Why? Who doesn't want social justice? I mean, one of the attributes of God that is emphasized in the Bible is justice. Social justice is defined as justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. Also, I'd like to keep in mind that it is a political movement, not a religious one. Okay? The goal of this movement seems to imply that if we make our society 100% equal throughout, then we build a utopia. Right? Who doesn't want that? Shouldn't we as Christians make it our mission to seek out all injustice and fight it wherever it's found? Let's examine a few scriptures. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is known. Anyone? What is it called? The Great Commission. Great. Um, the mission the apostles were given was to preach the message of the gospel. I will say that if you want social change, that's the first place we ought to start. The transformative message of the gospel promises to turn unbelievers dead in trespasses and sin into new creatures in Christ Jesus. And why is it important that I'm talking about the individual here? Well, let's examine a society. The building blocks of a society down to the atomic level is the individual's. Individuals get married, they start families, which turn into cities, states, countries. If the building blocks are good, the society will be good. We are the sum of our parts. The weakness of preaching social justice from the pulpit is that it's not what God is using to bring people the new birth. God only promised to use the message of the gospel to convert souls. 1 Corinthians 15, um, 1 through 4 tells us, For I delivered up to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is outlined from Paul, the original gospel, just so we don't get confused. Um, it's interesting because I was listening to a podcast uh, preparing for this, and there was a Christian apologetics person and uh, the guy point blank asked him, what is the gospel? And he cited the Apostles' Creed as the gospel. And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, I don't know how you can go through that much schooling and miss the gospel. 
So I don't want any of us here at Summit Church to miss the gospel, okay? Don't, don't miss that. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's the first part. Essentially, the message of the gospel is God is so holy that he will punish murder, rape, adultery, but he'll even punish liars, thieves, idolaters. God is actually paying us death in wages. But the gift of God is everlasting life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news part. Even if we are to solve all the social justice issues of today through clever preaching and create a utopia here on earth, yet a sinner without the message of the gospel will live his best life here but be eternally damned because the church traded the message of the gospel for a substitutionary message of the, uh, of the hour. Mark 8.36, For what shall, shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world but lose his soul? I'll let you ponder on that one. The social justice movement proposes two solutions. Protests in the streets that may turn into riots or elect officials that support the agenda, right? And aren't we tired of these politicians with their empty promises? Which reminds me, I guess this is the second. Um, what do politicians and dirty diapers have in common? Good one. <laughs> Close. They should both be changed, and for the same reason. I guess this thinkiness, right, Christina? Um, we must be as wise as serpents, the scripture says. The enemy wants to get our attention away from scripture and the gospel message and into politics or these trendy new movements. I'll ask you this morning, what do you hope in? Jeremiah 17, 5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. Are we trusting in a politician today? Is there hope in your best life now? I will take a stand this morning and say, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let us finish the race strong church and hope in Jesus. Let us re realize that man will never have the kingdom of heaven until the king arrives. I'll, I'll say that again. We will never have the kingdom until the king arrives. We cannot build it, but we can grow its citizens. That's the good news. He promises ultimately to establish his kingdom. Here's a warning. The end game of the social justice movement seems to lead towards a total reconstruction of government. The solutions, that I, the solutions proposed are really no solutions at all. This Marxist form of government advocates class war and leads a society to give up all private property and in turn, there's no private ownership. The dangers here are vast because when the government has full control over resources, it makes people subservient to the government. Now, for a second, close your eyes. It's only a quick second. And imagine a world where contrary thoughts are censored and even punished. Okay, open them. That was quick, right? Um, you don't have to imagine it because yeah, right now in our country, uh, Contrary beliefs and Christian beliefs are being censored by big tech algorithms. Historically, communism, and it's hard to talk about social justice without this final solution. Communism has been tried over the last 100 years, and a conservative estimates arrive at 100 to 150 million people murdered under these regimes. Uh, they are secular at the core. We know that the spirit of Antichrist was in the world 2,000 years ago, as we read in 1 John chapter 2. 
And how much more has it been growing, knowing that Satan, the prince of the power of the air, is, is around and is in charge? Ironically, a secular social justice push will lead to less social justice. Or social justice just for the obedient. So I'm offering a solution. Let's be about our Father's business and preach the gospel and pray for the kingdom to come that peace and real social justice can be established by the king. Now, if you want more equality and you have a heart for poor and needy, why don't you move with compassion, clothe the naked, bind up the broken, and feed the widows and needy? This is a commendable thing, but in the midst of doing that, let us not forget the saving power of the gospel. Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are the hands and feet of, gov- of Jesus, not the government. So this great commission and feeding the widows was assigned to individual believers. It was assigned to the church, not as a church to give the authority to the government to do our work and we just kind of give money to it and sit down in our hands. Right? So we cleared the first hurdle. We're on to the second. Critical race theory. How many of you have heard of this? Okay. Yeah, it's almost impossible to, if you go and watch any type of news, thanks Eva, uh, any type of news or um, schooling, you're going to hear about critical race theory. Um, We should first kind of take a step back and define the term. And I'll just use the, um, the letters. CRT, critical race theory, is a body of legal scholarship and an academic movement of civil rights scholars and activists in the United States that seeks to critically examine U.S. law as it intersects with issues of race in the U.S. and challenge racial justice. The main narrative of the CRT movement is that there is institutional racism in our country. Uh, They divide people into the oppressed and the oppressors, another Marxist playbook. Um, The goal is to give minority groups a greater voice to express their views and have greater opportunity in the workforce, education, military, and government. It seems impossible to talk about CRT without addressing racism. That's where a little knowledge of history gives someone a better understanding of where we have been where we are now and perhaps where we are going. So I'm just going to examine that historically in the present and where we're going. In fact, we'll start off with scripture. If we read in Genesis, we find out that the Israelites were slaves in captivity in Egypt for roughly 400 years before God rose up Moses to deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh. And critics will take this and say that scripture Uh, uh, promotes slavery, right? They say that the law given to Israel instituted slavery, giving laws on how to treat a slave. The context is very important in understanding what God was saying and why slavery seems to appear in Israel. And just for a moment, I'd like to also give a little context. The fact is that slavery was at the beginning. It was throughout that time period, and there was no rules. So anyone could do anything they wished to a slave. And at the minimum was that God actually set boundaries for people at that point, which was huge. Uh, the same thing with women, women's rights. God set a lot of boundaries and a lot of protection for women in scripture. 
That was unheard of uh, at that time. Well, when the children of Israel crossed over to the Jordan under Joshua and settled in the land, uh, every family was given an inheritance. This, it was an inheritance of land. The inheritance could be loaned out to pay a debt for a maximum of 50 years. So I have a piece of land, I'm in debt, and every 50 years there'd be a jubilee. A jubilee would automatically revert back to the owner. So you would never lose your inheritance. You'd only let it be borrowed for a maximum of 50 years and then it'd go back to you. Um, and once again, the debt would be canceled on the year of jubilee. The property would revert back to the family under the law. Another way, so a second way you can pay an outstanding debt outlined by the law is to willfully become a slave. The slave was to work for his hire, but the slave owner would be responsible for providing food, shelter, clothing um, for the slave. It was forbidden under the law to mistreat slaves, and when the debt was paid in full, they could be released. If, however, the slave loved his master, so this is a clause, his master and his master was just and a kind man, uh, the slave could become a bond servant, if you're familiar with that term. Uh, and it's very interesting. In Deuteronomy 15, 12 to 17, it says that, that that slave would be taken to the doorpost and have his ear pierced with an owl. Okay? Uh, take the principal ideas to start with. Nails driven through the flesh. Blood on the door frames. Permanent piercings with holes and scars forever. Does this sound familiar? If you're just starting to see the parallels, good. This is a picture of Christ. He left glory and humbled himself as a servant, a slave, if you will. He was pierced for our sake on the wood of the cross. He is also the door that we might enter into eternal life. Why the ear? Okay. Well, without going into too much detail, Levitical priests were consecrated by applying um, blood to the right ear, the right big toe, and the right, uh, right hand. Uh, big finger. Um, the ear symbolizes hearing from the Spirit of God through His Word. The hands speak of our good works before the Lord, and the feet symbolize our walk as pilgrims before the Lord through the wilderness of this world. We are pilgrims and strangers here. In fact, Paul even states that he has the marks and scars of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his body. Paul called himself a bond slave to Christ, or doulos in the Greek. We are slaves to Christ because he has made us free from slavery to sin. Amen. Let's fast forward a bit and observe the slavery around that. There wasn't just slavery around the ancient world, um, but slavery usually by means of force where one powerful tribe or nation would enslave another tribe or nation. In reality, in our nation, so taking a step back from the Old Testament and going into more modern history, our nation um, dealt with that from the beginning, but with the Civil War and the abolishing of slavery by Abraham Lincoln, society began shifting. The shift was not immediate, um, and after 100 years, the civil rights movement of the 1960s gathered the country together to rally against racism. But what did racism look like back then, pre-civil rights movement? Well, there was segregation. Schools, water fountains, restaurants, restrooms, to name a few, were segregated by race. 
White only and colored only signs were posted to distinguish what you could or couldn't use. Um, just to interject here, it's interesting that we've come full circle back around and now we have safe spaces for certain races here that exclude certain races. On college campuses, we've actually made a full circle back to pre-civil rights movement era. There were also unfair trials, lynching and injustice towards blacks across America, but especially in the South. Martin Luther King Jr. peacefully protested the segregation of racism of his day in his iconic I Have a Dream speech, which was given on August 28, 1963, so almost 100 years after the civil rights, uh, I'm sorry, the Civil War. He stated that in his dream was that one, I'm sorry, that his dream was that one would be judged on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Amen. It's not what's on the outside that ought to be judged, but rather what's on the inside. It seems simple enough. I would submit to you that after the civil rights era, America began to change. Segregation based on skin color disappeared. Those signs gone. I was born in 1990 and I have never seen a sign that indicated color or white of anything. Today, regardless of a skin color or the factors or, or, or uh, other factors, a person can typically get a fair trial uh, without an automatic lynching based on the color of their skin or a prejudice. Today, there's a large group of denominations that have given up traditional evangelism toward a push for CRT. So we're going to look at today. The issue and extremism of the CRT movement is that it says that by default, white people are racist. Basically, we have reverted from judging people based on the content of their character to the color of their skin. The modern narrative is that white people are oppressors and that all whites have owned slaves. They also assert that brown and black people cannot be racist. It just doesn't exist. Well, a quick historical look reveals that Native American Indians enslaved other Indians, Africans enslaved other Africans, and whites enslaved other whites. Even in scripture, we see that Jews did not associate with Samaritans, which were just a half-breed of Jew. In reality, anyone could be racist. Racism is a hard issue. And CRT simply denies this. The most troubling issue, this is the most troubling issue. Racism is defined a hundred different ways in the CRT movement, and there are no solutions. It seems like CRT at its core seems to divide the races, perpetuate hatred for more generations. The effects have been staggering and violence in the big cities have skyrocketed. Jesus said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Mark 3.24. I'll also turn the tables on us, Christians. Can we provide a solution to the race problem? So we've just observed historically and present day, and there's no solutions. It seems like they're proposing. The answer is yes. Through the gospel, once again, Christ has reconciled us not only to the Father, but with one another. How does this happen? Simply put, when we come to faith in Christ Jesus, we are brothers and sisters. Enemies can become friends and do become friends. Look at the conversion of Paul, for example. He started off hating and killing Christians to becoming a pillar in the early church and writing, I believe it was 13 epistles. 
most of our New Testament. Galatians 3.28, quotation from Paul, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Christ has torn down the dividing wall between humanity. This gospel unites mankind under the authority of Christ. And his commandment, love one another as I have loved you. How precious is this? Red, yellow, black, and white, we are precious in his sight. And if by now you have not believed me that racism in Christ has been abolished, let's take a look at our future. Revelation 5.9 You are worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God. Your to redeem us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Amen. That's right. In our redemptive future, there is no room for racism in the family of God. The Bible teaches that we are sinners created in the image of God. Racism will be overcome just as all sin will be overcome. In the meantime, we must press on and kill indwelling sin. Let us show the world the uniting power of the gospel. And I'll just leave it at that. We're going towards our third hurdle. And this is where perhaps the offense might come in. Gender confusion. The third popular trend is identity politics, especially in regard to gender identity and sexual orientation. It seems impossible to avoid transgender individuals in the media and in public places. Transgenderism is defined as a person whose sense of personal identity does not correspond with their birth sex. They assert that gender is a social construct and not just something you are born with. And if I were to ask, what do you think the percentage of transgender individuals are in this country? Would you say 5%, 20%, 50%? Well, the true numbers are statistically are actually between 0.6 and 1.6% max. Yet there is a huge push for affirmation and acceptance. It also seems impossible to talk about transgenderism without mentioning in passing the LGBTQ community and their effect on society. Here's a big question for believers. And in this next two sections, I'm gonna ask two questions, okay? Is the transgender lifestyle compatible with biblical Christianity? Let's examine some scripture. Deuteronomy 22.5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. The word abomination is the strongest word God can use to express disgust or hatred. Someone might object and say, God is love and we should affirm everyone because after all, we shouldn't offend. To that I would answer, amen, God is love, and yet God defines love for us in the scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God's love consistently throughout scripture is displayed to the believer that will humble himself to the authority of God. One such passage proves that when one comes to Christ, there is a change, as we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. <clears throat> Excuse me. But you are washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the, Lord, of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of God. This passage does not specifically point out transgenderism, but when a man lives in the LGBTQ lifestyle, they live in a state of rebellion and perpetual sexual immorality. Consider that this phrase, such were some of you. The Spirit of God can change the heart of any sinner that does not and, and does not leave it in bondage to sin, but takes them out and washes them clean, that they may live a life pleasing to God. The question comes up, so this is the second question, does God hate homosexuals and transgender individuals? And we have to consider two aspects. We love the sinner so much that he sent his son the first time not to judge the world, not to condemn the world, but that through him all might come to repentance and that we would flee the wrath to come. Yet, at the same time, God does hate sin and all workers of sin. Did you know that the wrath of God abides on all unbelievers? John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but, excuse me, but the wrath of God remains on him. Consider Psalm 5.5, 5, the, fool, the foolish shall not stand in thy sight, thou hatest all workers of, iniqu uh, of iniquity. The God of the Bible never affirms sin, but calls us to repentance and submission to his word. We must flee the wrath of God and run to the Savior, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have heard it said that God uh, loves the sinner and hates the sin, right? How many of you have heard that? But it's the, um, the late R.C. Sproul said, it's not the sin, but the sinner that is damned. And that's the reality. God made a way for all sinners to flee the damnation. And if we are to love the sinner, we do them no favor by not mentioning the wrath that they are to flee. So I'm going to give an example. Imagine a moment, a man who's blindfolded and he's approaching a cliff. As he's approaching, he's having a great time. He's laughing, he's joking, he's just, he's having a ball. And you see him in a distance and what would you do? You have a few choices. But as you see him approach imminent doom, would you just say, Jesus loves you? Or would you say, have a nice day? Well, the fact, would the fact that he's living his best life and having a good time influence us not to say anything because we don't want to offend him? Or would you run after him, screaming, full of compassion and saying, stop, stop, and pull him uh, from that path by force if necessary? I think the choice is obvious. Yet generally, Christians have either jumped on board to support the sinner walking toward the destruction and affirming their path, saying, keep going, it's good. While other believers, fearing to offend, uh, remain silent. And they're just really scared and they don't want to ruin the good time. 
Um, but perhaps, and, I, and I'm encouraging us, a small remnant of believers would be so bold and brave and compassionate as to share the gospel, plucking them from the fire as it were. The sad reality is the LGBT agenda is growing by converting children, and this seems to be the darkest trend of today. Um, if any of you are familiar with the San Francisco Men Choir um, that came out with a song saying that they're going to convert our children. How nice. Um, drag queens are celebrated. Trans individuals are put on covers, applauded. Um, there's a whole month dedicated to flaunting their sexual immorality before God and men. Interestingly, they took the rainbow, the covenant sign that God used to promise that he will never again flood creation and use it as a symbol of their pride. These images and lifestyles actually imprint into a child's mind and they grow up thinking it's good, honorable, and commendable and normal. There have been books and shows recently that teach kids about this lifestyle and even encourage it. A shocking trend is a push towards pedophilia normalization. Now kids are taught about sex from a young age and are pushed into choosing a gender when they are impressionable. We know that Satan reads scripture and is implementing Proverbs 22.6, perhaps better than some of us Christians. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We are given a choice to either bring up a child in biblical righteousness or the depraved culture of the last days. Have you noticed the great push to be affirmed? Why is it that the only orientation that seeks affirmation comes from these groups? I believe the answer lies in the conscience that God has put in every human. Con means with, science means knowledge. Every time we sin, we do it with the knowledge that we are going against God's law. And he has put that light in every man, the Bible says. Romans 2.15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Let's look at the excuse them clause. The honorable do not need affirmation because their conscience gives them the affirmation. While the wicked need to be affirmed to dull their nagging consciences. Statistics show that members that identify as LGBTQ are more depressed, anxious, and suicidal. They seek affirmation from everyone to dull the conscience so anyone that opposes or goes against their lifestyle is deemed a hater, um, or a bigot or an enemy, whatever. The sad reality is, even if everyone on the planet affirms them, the conscience will still bear witness of the law written in their hearts. They can never escape the reality of God and our moral obligation to our Creator. I know this has been a heavy subject, and I'm encouraging the church to be salt and light in the world. Let's do the most loving thing by proclaiming the gospel to our LGBT friends and community and praying that they would believe and obey it. They would say, I was born this way, but we are told that we were all born into sin. All have a nature contrary to God. Should we affirm the adulterer because he was born that way? Jesus said we must be born again. Therein lies the solution. Okay, we're approaching the final hurdle. 
Um, I thought there'd be less of you by now, but looks like we're good. Um, the end is in sight. We're at the finish line. Glad to see everyone's awake because we'll be exploring woke theology. This movement encompasses everything we've discussed and so much more. I'll remind us of exegesis and eisegesis, remember at the beginning, only to say that woke theology in essence takes scripture and inserts, highlights passages and talk about social prejudice and discrimination, inequality, so on. Um, woke theology is also tied into deconstruction and progressive Christianity. So in essence, what they do is they just take these social trends and they insert the Bible or impose the Bible over them to give an eisegetical interpretation of scripture. And it's almost impossible to talk about woke theology without mentioning, at least in passing, deconstruction, which is examining one's beliefs critically and discarding beliefs that we reject, and this leads to progressing in understanding of God. This could be good or bad. Uh, the good would be discarding beliefs that are erroneous, that uh, uh, are not biblical, while at other times, people almost totally throw out the inspiration of the Bible. They don't believe in a literal death and resurrection of Christ. They seem that they don't really believe in anything. They just take the moral passages and throw everything else out. They also seek to examine scripture through the lens of their own time and culture. The traditional way Christians have examined scripture is not through our own changing society, um, because it'd be vastly subjective, but through something called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a process of determine, determining what the verses mean in their larger historical and literary context. By examining the text through the lens of the writer and their time period, we can have a more understand. Uh, uh, we can have a better, accurate understanding of God's word. We must ask ourselves what the author originally meant when he wrote that piece. That's the important, that's the key. Without using proper exegesis and hermeneutics, progressive pastors can twist scriptures and turn it into a motiva motivational speaking, feel-good sermons, and worse yet, heresies. And we kind of talked a little bit about heresies in the book of 1 John. They haven't changed, they just keep getting recycled. You don't have to hear about wokeness from the news anymore. You can find a church near you that presents a new gospel, a gospel of social reform. I must warn you that this so-called new gospel is no gospel at all, as we read in Galatians 1.8. But if we, or an angel from heaven, preach to you any other gospel than what, you, than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And remember, we talked about the, the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1-4. to this is a strong condemnation and warning from Paul. This is not our gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we are to enter into heaven and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, we should be faithful to the content of the true gospel. Now you might ask yourself, why is this happening? To be honest, I'm not the least bit surprised. The Bible clearly warned that there would be an apostasy at the end of the age. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 24. Speaking about the end, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Does this sound familiar? These false Christs come in the form of hip, young, trendy pastors. 
that leave the sheep starving for biblical truth. In 2 Timothy um, 4.3, Paul warns, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Over the last few decades, society has deemed historical Christianity as offensive, and these false teachers have moved in with a religious Christian veneer. To dull the conscience of the congregation just enough for them to feel religious and yet send them straight to hell. That's right. These pseudo-Christian movements are closer to be called a social club rather than the body of Christ. An interesting statistic is that there are no new converts to this woke theology and progressive Christianity. It seems that they're made up of churchgoers that feel disenfranchised by their former congregations, and they just meet together. They left their church for various, uh, previous churches for various reasons. They assert nothing. They stand for nothing. They offend no one. When, when a building houses these people, it becomes so subjective that people fall away and come to the conclusion, like, what's the point? Why should I go to a church where we don't believe in anything? There's no real teaching. It's just a waste of time. Okay, we've cleared all four hurdles. Congratulations, you're still here. How are you feeling? Have I given us some things to meditate on this week? I want us leaving with a few thoughts to ponder. Mainly, all the issues we've covered find their solution in Scripture. You want social justice? Pray for the King of Kings to establish it. You, you find racism in society? Know that Jesus has bridged the chasm of race by reconciling us to the Father and each other and making us one in him. Are you confused about your gender identity? The Bible says God knew you before the foundations of the world. Fearfully and wonderfully knitted you in your mother's womb. There is still room at the cross for all those who will trust in Jesus and turn from their sins and find a new identity in Christ. Feeling woke? Repent from preaching another gospel. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to dive into these trends over the next few weeks. I want to assure you that we are a church that encourages questions. If you have questions, objections arise while you are bumping shoulders in the world, bring them to us. I want to leave us with the words of Paul as to what the church should be preaching from the pulpit as a final thought. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this is the real gospel that has the power to supernaturally turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.